1: Hello, my main, main, Kenny Main. How are you doing? What's up, buddy? I am doing well. We just did a little promotion recording. Now we're going to do you. If you hit Where'd another button, we can see you, but we can't. Oh, okay. You. Hang on a second. Ah, there we go. Okay. You should be tipped all this. There we go. All right. My guest this time is someone I've never met. Rex Chapman. Nice to meet you.
2: To meet you,
1: Kenny I don't think main. We, my, my main main, I don't
2: know that we ever
1: have. have I mean, maybe, maybe we were at like some event, yeah. I mean, it might have happened and we don't even know that it happened. Yeah. Obviously, I knew who you were, you know, because I did sports and you played basketball, and uh, and then I think we're our real association, which I would argue we became friends just through Twitter DMs essentially, right? Yeah, uh, we were very like minded with regard mm-hmm. to what's going on in the United States of America um so happy to have you on I'm
2: happy, happy to be go here. through
1: but. the life and times of Rex Chapman <laughs> so you're in Brooklyn because you were I gonna am. do a show for CNN plus like my yes. friend Jamel Hill Carrie Champion and then that thing just went away right like it started and it stopped almost in the same week yeah uh I'd been working on it for like now oh, three or four months and had a
2: few episodes put out really enjoying it um and then just I'm so new to all of the kind of this side of the media that I didn't really understand what was going on. They said, well, the platform's gone. I was like, what's that mean? I said, no more work. (laughs) You know, I'm under contract for, for a while, but it was a really empty feeling and not, you know, I was going to be fine, but all the the hundreds and hundreds of people who left jobs, you know, all over the country, the producers, the camera folks, everybody that left, you know, their own job to go do this. That's the,
1: that's the real part that sucks for, for, for uh, a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, I, I, mean, I think, like you said, you're, you're not that new to it, but I mean, you're new to right. the inside of the game where all the, all the inner workings and all the politics and right. and the finance everything. So, has it quickly opened up something different? Like, okay, that didn't happen, but now I'm already in position, I'm already down the road for these things I think I want to accomplish. So it almost gave you a kickstart into whatever that next thing is. It, yeah, it really did. And I can't talk about it today, uh, but there's a couple of
2: well, things. Well, that's bullshit because that, we no, brought been on can't. the show specifically. I know. In fact, okay. I reached out to the one who it. Maybe I can come back on when we announce it. For a while. Uh, <laughs> you have something but, going, but you can't. Yeah, I've talk got about something going that's actually done, and I'm actually already working on it. Just hasn't been announced yet, and it's super fun, super fun. Um, and then there a couple other things kind of in the pipeline. So all good, man. I'm I'm just, uh, hey, I'm I'm honest to goodness. I'm thrilled every day that I don't wake up chasing pain pills. (laughs) I did that for so long. And there's not a day that goes by that I just kind of thought my whole life would be that at some point. So, hey, uh, it's all it's
1: all uh, downhill from here. (laughs) Or 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 even. Yeah. Not downhill. in The sense you're going down. I know what you're saying. Easier to go downhill than walk uphill. Mm -hmm. Um, You kind of led me where I was about to go that. okay? You you are one of those guys who celebrates each day. Right. Like, I mean, we all should. But, given the experience you went through and we'll get into that, like waking up like, hey, I get to do some fun shit today. Yeah, you know, that's kind of tricky for me. i've I've never
2: I think that you know, I've suffered from depression probably since I was a teenager. Um, and i I've had to learn to appreciate yeah, <laughs> just little things. I think that I, you know, kind of ran from myself from a long for a long time. Um, you know, I played basketball. That's the only thing I did. It's the only thing I wanted to do. I didn't care about anything else, not school, not anything else. So I, uh, I, I'm at this point, I'm super grateful. I, I'm super grateful to be here. Um, you know, shit, I was eight, seven, eight years ago, Kenny, I was toxic. I mean, toxic people didn't, I, my phone didn't ring. So, uh, yes, I'm super grateful at this point.
1: You know, we share something in common. Uh, fortunately for me, I didn't take it as far as you did. I, got, I ruined my ankle oh, at UNLV man. playing football, and I was eating what was called hydrocodone, I think. So oh, it wasn't yeah. like the crazy high level. It was the, yeah. the mid-range level of those kind of pain pills. And I, there's no question that I was recreationally using them, even though I did have a fucked up ankle, And I always had that, like, yeah, I need them. Look at my ankle. I'm ready to cut it off. But I literally quit cold turkey when I got this device for my ankle about five years ago. Like, I just don't need them. I don't want them. Um, I was never, like, you know, 15 a day. But it was like, it was too How how hard was it for you? Um, It's weird, but it it was such a miracle that I got this device, which we then started a foundation to give them to veterans. It was almost like... I'd be cheating what I was doing if I went back to it, right? Like I, yeah. I kind of looked at it morally, like, I don't need that shit. It's like, it's they, and the thing is they, they, they stop working anyway. Yeah. They, you know, it's like any other thing that you, I need one more. I need one, you know, and it's like, how many, you know, could you possibly take to get whatever that thing is you wanted? in your case? And you've been very forthright about this. I don't yeah. feel bashful bringing it up, honestly, no, because no, no. it's sure. a success story for those who are still struggling. Look at this guy. He fucking hit bottom. I mean, you got into criminal behavior, right? Like, yeah, yeah. In the way you want to tell the story, tell your story. What? Why did yeah. you even go to them? Why did you get trapped in it? I, uh, you know, I didn't drink. I wasn't a
2: drinker. I didn't drink in college. Probably didn't have my first drink till I was twenty-two. So I, I just, I just didn't drink. All my friends drank, smoked. You know, I played in the league for twelve years. Um, I just didn't. It, I, I didn't feel like I could play and do that. I just didn't. Uh, so. Near the end of my career, I had seven, I had like seven surgeries my last three years playing. And the last one, uh, I was kind of done. My body was done my last year. And right before the playoffs, I ruptured. Uh, my appendix almost ruptured. I had to go to the hospital, had an appendectomy, emergency appendectomy. And I'm out the rest of the season. And I know I'm probably not going to play anymore. I get back home and a doctor... <laughs> As I'm getting off the plane, hands me a prescription for Oxycontin, uh, you know, for pain for my appendix. And I go, he said, oh, you know, and I'd had, like you said, hydrocodone, Vicodin, Percocet, the the kind of the <laughs> middle rung opioids um, that used to be the most powerful thing you could get. Right. Lord tabs. Um And so I'd had those through surgeries before, but I'd already always gotten off of them because I needed to know exactly how my body felt, you know? So for whatever reason, I, I got that my appendix didn't hurt that bad, but it it hurt. So I filled the thing. I had a prescription. I had a prescription for like three a day for 30 days. And these were 10 milligram Oxycontin and no shit, Kenny within two days Two and a half, three days, I felt like, okay, this is this. I am not, I'm not socially uh, worried about anything anymore. I'm not, people don't, I don't worry if people have recognized me. I don't, you know, if people come up that and they just want to talk basketball, which is something that's always just sort of freaked me out. If I don't know them, I'm, you know, at the time I'm 32, 33, all of that went away. People were coming up to me at my son's T ball game that I, you know, kind of would maybe avoid. They'd come up, and before I knew it, the game was over. We'd sat there and talked the whole game. I felt like it made me smarter, funnier, better dad, better husband, all of that. And within, you know, I knew that within days, I liked that medicine. Before long, uh, it, it, it was, it was not long before the medicine was telling me to take it. You know, it wasn't my decision anymore. My head would start hurting and I, I just long story short ish 18 months go by or so. And I'm, I'm taking probably, well, I'm taking about 40 Vicodin a day and about 10 Oxycontin a day. I'm just chewing them, you know, to get them in my bloodstream quicker tastes like shit. But the thing about the, The Oxycontin is, man, if you chew that up, um, it, it, you know, it busts the time release thing that's supposed to make it some genius and you get it all at once. And uh, it's, I don't know, I've been in rehab three times. I don't know what heroin feels like because I, I just never, I guess, I hadn't gotten that far down yet. I was arrested, and fortunately, I got into rehab. And I, so, uh, but I was taking eight, eight, so much. And Danny Ainge in 2001 came to me and said, "Hey, man, you're messing your life up. Look at you. Look at the decisions you're making. You got to go to rehab." I went to rehab, and at that point, I was taking that much. I got off, got out of rehab, but I still had like a pit in my stomach that I felt like was withdrawal. And for six, eight months, I I had this sort of pit. If I went to the movie theater, I would sit with a pillow on my lap. I would take a pillow from home. Nothing felt comfortable. And I had to to have a surgery on my wrist. I had the surgery, had a screw uh, removed from my wrist. And of course, I should have told the doctor, you know, hey, I don't need, I should be taking pain medication. Uh, I didn't. Um, he gave me some Vicodin, and uh, I took the Vicodin, took uh, a Vicodin. Pain went away immediately in my stomach. So now I'm back on the Vicodin. I go back to rehab. I get out of rehab. They put me on Suboxone, supposed to wean you off of <laughs> of uh, opioids. And I stayed on Suboxone for like ten years. At I've now at this point I've gone through a divorce, uh, of 20, we were married 20 years, four children. Uh, my ex-wife is great. Kids are all great. Uh, but we'd gone through a divorce and my, i get, ga- I gambled Kenny. I, I, I didn't drink. I didn't, uh, smoke. I, I gambled. I played horses my whole life. I could read a racing form before I could read a newspaper. We have nothing in common. Right. Yeah. We do. We know that. Uh, but I, uh, you know, I, I I grew up at Ellis Park, um and which was forty minutes from my was, home. Long Acres yeah.
1: here, out near yeah, Southern. okay, yeah.
2: I've been to Long Acres. I used to. I would when you'd, when you'd visit. When the I when I would run, go. There you go. Yes, sir. And, and I did that
1: everywhere. So you're if overusing I, drugs and
2: over gambling at once. Yo, yeah, yeah, and it just got you know. Once I didn't, I, I was just, I was lost. You know and and completely lost i of course you can look back and see dude you're gambling
1: 20 grand a day and um okay we stopped we don't have that in common i was yeah I was well yeah but you had a bigger right. bank role you played in the nba right it's it, relative i guess it's it's insane but um
2: so I was just, and I was miserable, I guess, I, I, and not really understanding why I was. Then my uh, apparently my money went away, and I'm in an Apple store, and it's Christmas time, and I see all this uh, stuff out there, and I apparently take some Apple merchandise and to pawn it, so I can go gamble and get more money for my drug habit. And so that's 2000 and probably happened in 2013 ish. Uh, but this was 2014 was when I was arrested. Um, it was right. It was,
1: uh, eight years ago yesterday. Yeah. I saw it (laughs) on, I saw it on Twitter. A lot of people celebrated with you. Yeah. Like, okay, you fucked up. Things were bad, but where are you now? Right. So, um, yeah, so
2: I went to rehab and that was really hard. It was the first time I ever really took it seriously. But the really messed up thing, Kenny, was when I was in rehab, I detoxed, which is horrible. It's seven, six or seven, eight days of just throwing up and hot and cold and in your underwear, you've got clothes on, you're hot. You, it's, it's, it's bad as it's, it's bad. And you're just sort of delirious. Uh, and, but when I got I, off of that, uh, and got everything out of my system, I'm starting to like go to class, you know, in rehab and, uh, you know, meet with therapists and, and whatnot. My stomach started hurting so bad that, um, it was, it was just, it was constant. And at, to where they ended up having to call an ambulance, they had to take me to the hospital. They, uh, uh, you know, scan me, blood tests, all that. Come to find out, I've got ulcers from the opioids that have likely been there since all the oxycontin in mm-hmm. two thousand and one. But the opioids cause ulcers, but they also mask the pain of the ulcers. Right. They they put me on uh, ulcer medication. And in two days, I felt like a brand new person. Like, I didn't have what I thought my whole life, my last 14, 15 years, was withdrawal. And I just, I still, I get kind of get mad that no doctor ever during that time was like, maybe you have ulcers. You've had, you know, you've been eating pain medicine for fucking years. So anyway, once I got off of that, um... It's been, it's, it's not been, you know, easy sailing, but it's been much, much easier.
1: When did you, after that experience you just described, was it a month later, two months later, whatever time period and you're like, I kind of feel okay again, I don't need that shit. And I'm putting back Oof. together some of my personal stuff. Want to ask about your relationship with your kids during that time? Yeah. You said you got divorced. How much acrimony was there through all that? It was hard. My wife, my ex-wife, and I. I I had
2: all kinds of misguided uh, anger and resentment toward her, and almost all of it was was uh, my fault and my doing. But I couldn't see that. Um, we weren't in a very good place. You know, my kids were, we had, still had two, three teenagers Yeesh. Um, so that was, that was extremely hard and I was broke, broke, dead, broke. I left rehab and went to, um, <laughs> John Lucas, you know, John, yeah. uh, John Lucas, um, I went out to John. He's got a sort of a rehabilitation program. Yeah, for those who don't know, famous yes. in the
1: NBA, had his own addiction issues, overcame them, and has been sort of a leader trying to get other people off. Right. Uh, number one player drafted and also two-time NCAA tennis champ. Oh. How about that? That's not bad. Not bad. I, um, I'm sorry. I, I kind of, like, confused you with nine questions at once. That's Okay what did you do? Cause it sounds like, mm-hmm. and you're very diplomatic about it. Like, Hey, it was me, not her, even though you got, divorced. Oh yeah. What did you do to make amends? Like, did you, <sighs> did you go one by one with each of the family members say, look, I messed up. I'm back now. Oh, I want to be okay. that guy that I could have been the whole time. Got you. Um,
2: I, I think that that's just been a process. My kids were great. They, they really were. Um, my ex-wife was great. Even, you know, I, I didn't have, when I got arrested, I didn't have anybody's phone number. You know, I didn't know anybody's phone number. We used to know people's phone. I didn't know any, only one I knew was hers. And I hadn't talked to her, like physically talked to her in six months, maybe just stupid. And we're, we've got our kids
1: going back and forth every day.
2: And we're not so you were talking.
1: still parenting you were still showing up at oh games. yeah you were, yes you just weren't very capable because you were in this deficit. i was i was i
2: i was there all the time i just wasn't there right, right? you know so um mentally uh, and not really understanding what was going on with me and what i i, I don't know how to explain it other than it's just in insanity right um so i i yeah. I, my kids have been great. I felt like the best thing for me to do was just to continue to do right and try to rebuild. You know, I, I was still trying to put them through college and everything. I, every I was, I started back, you know, just working kids out. Um, you know, there was no media opportunities for me. There was no basketball opportunities for me. I was working middle school and high school kids out in Houston. Uh, in Los Angeles, did that for a couple of years. Um, And just, I think the process of showing my kids that, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm continuing to do right. I'm continuing to do the next right thing. That's been, you know, I I just felt like I could show them better than talk to them. And of course, I've had the conversations with them where I've, you know, I break down and they break Mm -hmm. down and it's, you know, it's hard, but it's, it's life. And I'm, you know, I'm still not, with my ex-wife, it's still a process. I still haven't said the things to her that I probably,
1: well, that I need to say, you know, some things. Well, I think some people listening who don't know your story, hearing the way you're saying it, maybe you're not saying all the right words, <laughs> but you're characterizing it in the way that, right, is contrite. Yeah, like I hope, I don't do know. <laughs> you, do you have any malice toward that first doctor that gave you unnecessarily, it seems, over, over-drugged you? I do, and here's why. I, I, I won't say his name, but I, this
2: has been a, a whole ordeal, this whole uh, Purdue Pharma and OxyContin thing. Yeah, yeah, that, you bring that that them doctor, up, to Sacklers yeah, and every, yeah. That doctor, um, he prescribed me that drug for six, eight months, you know, before I could, it, before it became, a, I, I couldn't get enough, Right. And so I had to start going to a dealer. but he prescribed me this this medicine. A couple of years ago, people were allowed to file these uh, lawsuits against Purdue Pharma. and so I did that. Um, we start going back to get records of pharmacies. Well, Purdue Pharma, Osco bought Walgreens and Purdue Pharma was involved and, you can't get, you can't even get your prescription history from 20 years ago. Now, hmm. all of my stuff is scrubbed. How, how crazy is that? It's, it's almost just, like
1: cell phone records after an insurrection.
2: <laughs> yeah, God, but that's that part of it's maddening. And so at one point, I, I, my lawyer called this doctor and he denied all of it. He hmm. denied ever giving me any prescriptions. And that that just how I don't he must know that we we can't access the records right, right. or
1: he there's no way he would lie about it. But is yeah, there somebody have, out there? You mentioned John Lucas, but that was kind of later during your roughest times when right, you were kind of written out. A lot of people like probably avoided you and maybe see you at an event and kind of walk the other way. Like you probably got the cold shoulder, but was there somebody that kind of like stuck with you like dude you mentioned danny Ainge. where was there somebody that was kind of like your go-to rock
2: yeah um i I think i had so much guilt and shame still do but at the time that you know people i could have leaned on i didn't uh you know friends from I, i i was so embarrassed and ashamed that, for whatever reason, it was easier for me to, uh, <laughs> I don't know exactly how to put it. it. my I had two really good friends that I, they're guys that really helped me. You know, I lived when I'm, I, I didn't have any place to live. I could have gone to Phoenix. I didn't have any money to get an apartment, nothing like that. It wasn't like, so I was down, man. So I went to Los Angeles, a good friend of mine named Mark Verge, who lives in Los Angeles, um, uh, best friends with Doug O'Neill, Thoroughbred. That's true. Yes. Um, those guys, I went out there. Mark Verge put me up in his place for six, eight months. Um, I was getting myself together, healthy out, walking. You know, I, I weighed, I played probably weighed 185, 190 when I played. I'm about 200 or so now. Uh I was 260 when I got into oh. rehab. And my body was bad, my my mental space was bad, but I went out. I lived in Mark's place for that long, a good buddy of mine around that time, Josh Hopkins, actor, who I'm sure you you yeah. know somewhat. Josh uh uh, has a place in Sherman Oaks. He was and getting doing ready. The,
1: you do a podcast with him, correct? I do. Yeah,
2: he's one of my besties. So, uh, but Josh was getting ready to go do a movie in Prague, and wanted somebody to stay in his house. So I went and stayed in his house for a year, all his time. I'm not, you know, I'm I'm really not working other than, um, you know, working out kids and trying to get back. and And around that time. A guy from, or or, uh, I'd been out there for a couple years. And so going into like 2016, the fall of 2016, I believe a guy from uh, a guy named Paul Archie, who I love to death. He called me, he runs the, uh, the media arm of Kentucky basket or Kentucky sport, uh, Kentucky media. It's JMI owned. And Paul used to be with major league baseball. He runs JMI now. He called me and said, "Hey, do you want to come back and do Kentucky basketball radio?" Love to. And I didn't. Have, I would have. I probably would have paid them to <laughs> allow me to do that. So I went back. I lived with my sister for six or eight months. I was doing these games and uh, loving it. Um, paid a hundred bucks. I felt good about myself you know i felt much better than i'd felt uh at any time in my life just kind of understanding what some of my problems were and starting to work through those
1: yeah it sounds like you had a lot of allies at the time where you, where you needed them what mm. well, your description believe me i'm looking at the clock we spent almost a half hour and i didn't <laughs> i wasn't ever going to try to drag you through but there's so much detail yeah and Sorry. Who knows? No, 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 no. Not asking for okay. apology. I'm saying, I'm sorry. There's a bunch of other subjects. Oh, I don't that care, one man. is so heavy and so crucial and critical that you overcame it, that it's worth all the time. It, your description kind of reminds me of that old joke when a very rich man went broke and somebody said, how did you how did all the money go away? And, and I think the answer is like slowly at first, then all at once. Yeah. (laughs) Right. I mean, exactly. No, it
2: just happens. Yeah. A good little story that, that from rehab, I got into rehab and, you know, I'm still down, but I'm off the medicine and I'm supposed to be doing like some homework stuff in, you know, during the time I'm supposed to be doing that. And this guy named Clyde, a big brother named Clyde, uh, works at the rehab place diehard Carolina basketball fan. We have bonded over this for a few days now. Uh, Clyde comes in my room and sometimes he might be cleaning stuff. Sometimes he might be checking on a a patient and Clyde comes in my room and I'm just in my bed. I'm laying on my bed, just half asleep. And, and he comes in and starts looking under my like bed, looking behind the curtain and, Finally, I'm like, what are you you doing? And he said, looking for some humility in here. Hmm. And I I sat up in my bed and I started cracking up. Like, he he completely blindsided me. And at that moment, I just went, oh, okay. now, Now we're talking. Was so he right? Was he, he right to be looking right. for right? Of course, he was looking for it. He knew that there had to be some in in that room somewhere. It wasn't where I was, <laughs> but he pointed that out. And at that point, I was like, "Yeah, man, come on, you got to do the work. You got to if you really are trying to do this, you gotta, you gotta pay attention." Presented by T-Mobile
0: And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places.
1: How crazy is it to look at the new NBA money? Is there any... I got a feeling some of the guys have to be like, wait a minute, I'm better than that guy. And he just signed a max deal for this month. You know, And I know. It's relative. The dollar's worth different and all that, but it really, God love them. You know, the league's making money and they have the money to spend. I don't begrudge anybody making whatever they make in any field, yeah. but it you know, is crazy. It's, it's crazy.
2: But I remember signing a deal, uh, my second deal in like, uh, Uh, 1990 91 for uh it was for 10 million dollars 2 million a year and I remember doing that and thinking back to like six years prior five years prior to that when Moses Malone
1: signed the same kind of deal wow and I and I went come on this is this is absurd well, you know. remember when Irvin Johnson signed 20 million, One, 20 million, 25 over,
2: for 25 years. Right.
1: And we thought that was preposterous. Preposterous. Right. Now that's like a low hitting middle infielder on a baseball you know. Yeah, so I guess. I, no, I don't. The, time I changed, don't the money, the money yeah. changed, the TV changed and, hey. the, and it's there to have. And the NBA,
2: of, of all the sports franchises, I believe, maybe it's because I'm biased, but um, really treat their players well. Uh, the NBA was – there were programs that were accessible to me when I was down that I didn't know about, that the NBA called me up and said, hey, you know, you can you can qualify for some grants uh, here and there. That the NBA, So – and every time, you know, there's a new CBA – We've, we've got all I've got full. I didn't have health insurance forever, Kenny. I've got health insurance now. All former players, health insurance. All of our kids, health insurance till they're 26. And then they can get on the same plan and, and pay a little bit less. Wow. So I, it's it, hey, it, nobody should be complaining about the money that,
1: that people are making these days. I don't think. When did you know that you were any good at basketball? Were, were you one of those like phenom kids at eight, nine, or did you develop later? I was a phenom. <laughs> <laughs> I was all I did. I could play. I I uh because I don't, not to interrupt but there yeah. were a lot of kids in grade school where I'm from in 5th or 6th grade you're like, oh, this guy's playing major league baseball and he doesn't even play in high school. You know, not yeah. some let kids me play. are some yeah, kids they, are good early and late. And apparently that's They, they didn't were. they didn't let me play with the kids my
2: in my grade for. Right. Um, I I mean like not even my grade or a grade ahead I played like in sixth grade I was playing on the freshman team and you know in in third grade I was playing on the sixth grade team Uh, so I I was but it's all I did I loved it I would leave school my dad coached uh, he coached Jeff Jones who was a point guard for Ralph Sampson Mm -hmm. uh, at Virginia and I grew up watching Jeff Jeff was my idol and so I would leave school and Uh, get a ride down to my dad's uh, to Apollo where I ended up going to high school um, to watch his team. I do my homework real fast and watch his team's practice. And I think I, you know, I probably learned how to just emulating the guys uh, learn how to dribble behind my back before I knew it was hard. So by the time, you know, it was easy. Also it was Kentucky. I probably never played against anybody that, that was better than I was until, you know, I went out of state to some, tournament um when did you start getting attention from colleges um so my freshman year in high school I was five seven five eight and you know hadn't reached puberty nothing uh I played every game on the freshman team every game on the JV team and every varsity game um I had two two of my best friends to this day Jeff Sanford and Greg Bond they're freshmen with me they started as freshmen on the varsity team, they played no JV, no fresh, no, no freshman basketball. I came off the bench. I probably averaged about 10 points a game though. I could, you know, I could slip it in the basket even, you know, as a, you know, scrawny little kid three months later, I was six, three. Wow. So, and, um, my, And my back was all messed up and my knees, but my athleticism – I was always quick enough, but my athleticism was starting to kind of come into play where I could jump up over the top and play over the top of people. And um, so, sophomore year – And shoot.
1: You were known as a shooter. shooter. I could get hot. I could get hot. I wasn't a real shooter. How about when you – Probably. How about when you got to the college level, was there any – not fear, but you know, like trepid- Like, oh, this is Division One my, A. This is different. My dad coached Division Two basketball. Uh, my whole or from
2: the time I was ten to in our hometown. If at any time he would have said, do "You want to come play for me?" I'd have gone play for it. Like until I was around fifteen or sixteen, I'd have been like that was a dream. I just wanted to get my. I just wanted to get a scholarship. I didn't see an NBA game until I played in one. We didn't have. It, it wasn't a dream. I wanted to get a scholarship. So my sophomore year, I averaged probably 20 points a game and was a good player. Junior year, I it felt like uh, playing against children uh, uh, for the most part, junior and senior year of high school. But my dad had let me know, even through all the recruiting and everything, he had me very, very well wired to understand that college was going to be different. And, you know, at Kentucky, I was not promised any playing time, some other things maybe, but not playing time. I went there and conditioning kicked my fucking ass. Weight room kicked my ass. And there were days I was playing against James Blackman and Ed Davender and Winston Bennett and those guys. And, you know, I would get tired after three points in the game and they, they're, they're in, they were grown men, you know, they were 22, 23. And, it was kicking my ass. There were days I left practice and I was like, I, I don't know if I can play anywhere. Then practice started and I knew how to play basketball and I could make a post feed. I could do all the things that, you know, maybe some of the other guys didn't, didn't do. Once we started playing, I was surprised at, um, it, it was easier than i thought and that was hard it was it was still hard i was learning how to play defense you know uh <laughs> learning how to play not only on one end but learning how to so that the conditioning part of it was hard by the time i was i played on the team usa that summer at that point i felt very
1: confident that i could play with anybody well that was know. enough confidence even at that level to then know once i got to the the big league the nba like i i'm I can play with these guys. Yeah. You know, that was, it was eye opening. I, I got invited to the trials. I didn't, I, I didn't
2: even know the trial. I didn't know. I, I was a freshman. I was the only freshman that was invited to, or Jr. and I, Jr. Reed and I were invited for the, the trials. And, you know, I ended up Denny Crum, who I snubbed. I told Denny, I was coming to Louisville. I, and then we beat Denny and them by like 30, 35, my freshman year. He's the coach of the USA team, of the Pan Am team. Hmm. He picked me. He picked me. I started for him. was like the third leading scorer on the team. Uh, but it was me, Danny Manning, David Robinson, um, Pooh Richardson. That's a good crew. Um, it's a good crew. Um, but at that point, I, you know, I knew at least as far as college, there weren't, weren't there weren't guys better than that um, that, that I was going to face. I played against Vernon Maxwell. Vernon was great. Oh, was um, tough. You know, it was tough. But, you know, I knew I could play
1: with the best players at that point. Most people, you know, never get to that, right? Yeah. Never get to pro football, whatever. I played college quarterback. I was second string, not a big star. But I still miss the thrill of doing the stuff I used, to, like just playing catch even. I, I find people to play catch because I still love throwing the football. And is that what you miss most? Not, not that you got your name in the paper, but... Yeah. You, you know were out what, there getting, playing the game you love with the highest level players.
2: You, you make a great point, and I probably should have mentioned this. And I I usually do mention this when I go speak to groups and whatnot. When I finished playing at 32, my body was beaten up. Um, the one thing, you, you know, you re, you know that you're going to – well, you think you're going to – you hear people saying, oh, I really missed the game and all that. My body was beat up. I kind of felt like I didn't wasn't getting the joy out of it like I was. Uh, once before, what you don't realize, yes, you miss the bus rides, you miss the, that, that's all a huge, the, the camaraderie. Yes. Also, I've been playing since I was six. And at least once a day or twice a day, maybe five times that day, I did something on the court to rip the heart out of, you know, whether it's on the playground, made a game winner, bullied somebody, you get a thrill from that. You definitely get a thrill when you make shots or game winner and the crowd goes crazy. That's a real feeling that it's hard to really describe to anyone, but you definitely become addicted to that feeling. And when I quit playing, you I had no idea that that would be something I missed. It's also something I didn't even realize I missed till like six years ago. Right? Like I mm-hmm. once that, And you're going to look to fill that some way. And if you don't have a productive way to fill that, um, it can be pretty lonely
1: and pretty rough. Your presence on Twitter in particular would suggest both honesty and humility, I would argue, because I don't know if you started this way. Was it, intentional or did it just happen that you were kind of like celebrating all right i'm i'm back on my feet again and i'm going to put out a lot of stuff that's kind of joyful i mean trump would come in yeah you and i are in We are aligned (laughs) with regard to that but you would just put out and you always said the humanity or you Mm -hmm. know try kindness so you had these little catches that would celebrate just a beautiful moment like fucking people be nice to each other we got so much division and so much acrimony And you'd put out just like this really cool 30 second or a minute video of two elephants saving another elephant out of a pond or whatever, you know, could be anything, but it was, it really was beautiful. Some of them were like, you know, tear-jerkers or, or sweet ways, little kids, you know, were treated or whatever. And then conversely, you laid the hammer, absolutely zero fucks to give about politics, about going after your two horrible senators, uh, McConnell and Paul uh, in the Commonwealth of Kentucky, your home home state. So you, you've done it a was, little of both. It's like it's like the, not good cop yeah. bad cop, but all of that is you, and you, and you present all of it in tandem.
2: I think through this whole process over the last you know several years years for me, but also what we've all collectively experienced uh, with the Trump presidency. I was tweeting that you know to do some of the. Media stuff, NBA TV and TNT, and you know those guys have always been great to me. Oh, and I've always done NBA TV. I've gone back there and filled in forever. Scooter Bertino and and Tara August, uh, those guys have always been great to me. So I was doing that, but to do that, you know, these days people kind of want you to have some sort of social media presence. Well, I stumbled onto the blocker charge thing. I, it, it, I don't know really where it came from. I just saw two dolphins. They Ran into a guy, I tweeted blocker charge, and then that kind of you know took off. I felt that was easy because there was all kinds of shit I was wanting to say about Trump and all of this, but he'd just been elected, uh, so I was doing that to kind of keep from uh, talking about this.
1: Monster. So blocker charge was your avoidance. Today. Yeah, re- I swear
2: it really was, and so. And, you know, we went through and two or three years of this, but then the pandemic hit and George Floyd happened. And at that point, I just couldn't, I, I couldn't in good faith, you know, bite my tongue about the George Floyd stuff. And, um, so I, I wrote an article about, you know, just my experiences uh, growing up and, and just how wrong this whole thing was. And, and that kind of, I, I felt like something needed to be said. And, you know, I, I probably, there was probably things that I could have said and, well, I should have said when I was an athlete, when I had a big platform and everybody was, you know, there were plenty of things that I thought that I didn't say when I should have. You could have been Steve Kerr, or Coach Popovich at that time. Well, you know, there's a guy I look at right now, Joe Burrow. Oh, he's great. Uh he's great. And he picks his spots and he,
1: you know, he he doesn't often miss if I don't know that he's missed yet. You no, know when when there's a, a moral and a lot of it is less, in my opinion, not so much political left and right. Mm-hmm. It's moral right and wrong. I know that Correct. sounds cliche, but i said I'm that to some family members back you know when he came down the escalator and talked about mexican rapists and all that and you, you know some of us saw it a long time ago i'm not saying i'm so smart but i pretty well read pretty studied on it mm-hmm. and people i follow i was being informed by less so mainstream media than independent journalists uh, i think are doing the better work mm-hmm. and a lot of people even today a lot of people just football's back you know it, <laughs> america's regular you know no it's not true i mean yes I those things are happening I don't know how people don't see it. I don't know. I have these conversations all yeah, the time. Either. Well, I mean,
2: you and I were around New York a bunch in the 80s. We saw this guy. We saw Trump. We, everybody knew who he was and what he was. And, you know, I I got on the elevator with him. I was on the elephant elevator at the Garden. Uh, the Knicks had, we'd just gotten smacked by the, uh, the Knicks, the Hornets had. And he got, <laughs> Trump and Marla Maples got on the elevator with us. And you've never seen a guy he, he made eye contact with nobody, you know, he's the, he's probably rarely the, the smallest guy in the elevator. The only person smaller than him was Muggsy. And, you know, he didn't make eye contact with any of us. It was almost like he was nervous that, you know, some of the guys might hit on Marla. It was pathetic. is was what it was. And that was, you know, I can't, I don't, I don't meet anybody that has different stories than those. I mean, every story you hear about the guy, or
1: he was he was just kind of a, a caricature, you know. Well, you could argue it's not just him, you know. Yeah, he yeah. is the symptom of a larger problem, mm-hmm. and all these people that are, have been covering for him. And, you know, how about Lindsey Graham? He was one of his biggest uh, critics. They went golfing that one day, and now he's his biggest defender. Something's up there, maybe. I, you mm-hmm. know, it goes on and on. So you have it's specifically – you know, defended your home state and talked, you know, you talk about the whole country, but, but because you're from Kentucky and it matters even more to have McConnell and Rand Paul, you've been rather outspoken, just trying to shake up your people. How yeah. come you can't get through? Is there, uh, um, yeah, good, <laughs> I ask well, myself this question yeah, all the time The same. I
2: I'm, I'm born in bowling. I was born
1: in Bowling Green,
2: Kentucky. This is where Rand Paul lives. Um, uh, <laughs> It just, it drives me insane. Uh, I grew up 45 minutes from Bowling Green in Owensboro. Mitch McConnell, I have never, and we could probably go back. I'm sure we could, you can find everything on Google. I, I, for a long time, I have not held my tongue with Mitch. When I was a junior in high school, he was elected Senator. And I'm in Owensboro, Kentucky, and we're, I'm 16, I guess, 17 ish. And um, we get to school and there's an announcement, you know, over the PA that comes on and says, hey, the new senator from, you know, uh, Louisville is is flying flying from from Frankfurt to Owensboro, which is like a 20 minute helicopter flight. And he's flying and going to go out on the on the uh, football field and we're going to go out there and greet him to school. This is what we're doing. And so, you know, what am I going to do? Everybody goes out to the football field and we're standing there. The teachers are in the back. There's, you know, 600, 800 students, however many we have out there. And he lands and his little handler comes off the, uh, he has a little guy, some little guy assistant working for him, gets off, off of the, um, off of the helicopter with a briefcase that has a Confederate bumper sticker on it. And, I, I looked around like, and Mitch got off the thing and I, and nobody, nobody now also driving home from school that day, I might pass four houses that have a Confederate flag on them. just so you for the context. Um, but as soon as I saw that, I turned around and I walked back inside and I passed the teachers. I'm walking straight through the teachers. And I said, fuck this guy, man. And, And I got inside. I ended up getting three days of detention for cussing and not staying out for um, the assembly. It was your first political protest. Well, I felt felt very confident about it. Uh, You know, I knew. I know what the Confederacy was. I know what that stood for. I know that. I know that history, even if it wasn't taught the way it was supposed to be taught in our schools in Kentucky. I knew that because my parents taught me that. So I had no problem uh, disavowing uh, Confederates and, you know, knowing that this guy, this guy was going to be representing Kentucky, the state of Kentucky. Yeah. I see. I didn't know that at the time. I, you know, had no idea he was, he could have, he
1: was Matt Gates or whoever the hell else he was. I'll give you an attendant Mitch McConnell story. Good friend of mine. I've done this before. You come into Louisville, Derby week and you do a little speech in front of a crowd and kick off Derby week. And a friend of mine did it one year and gives the speech. And he notices McConnell's in the audience. He feels like us. And he, they go to interview, Oh, the Senator's here and shakes hand. And so on purpose, he gave, Hey, I got a horse. I think you're really going to like. And he gave him the worst horse he could imagine. And I don't know if it was the Derby or the preceding race. He just always felt good about giving. Him a of <laughs> Speaking of you, you talked about when we were in the very serious, yeah uh section of this, uh the temptation of the opioids and all. And and you said you were gambling too much. Are you able now to still play horses but do it at a very low level that's more modest? I don't it off. I
2: it was always hard for me to go to uh you know i uh, table gambling wasn't really my thing. Blackjack, I played now I played a ton of blackjack over the years, but I didn't you know, once I finished playing basketball, I didn't play much blackjack. You can you can spend your money slower betting horses. <laughs> you control it. Yeah. You control. You, you can only bet so much. You're playing against the pool. and But, you
1: know, the, but it, these days you wouldn't go to a track or could you go? And no, no. Enjoy so the I, day?
2: I've, I've gone. I've gone. I'm trying to think. I haven't been to the. No, I take that back. No, I've been, I've been, uh, you know, of course I've been, I've been out to, I was with Mark Verge and Doug and those guys. I've been to the track. I don't, I mean, it, if it's, um, if it's Derby, if it's Breeders' Cup, I might go out, I might place a few bets, but I really had to swear it off because it's, I, I like nothing more than uh, reading a racing form. It just, uh, and getting lost in the bloodlines and the, you know, the troubled trips. And I love it. I love it like that. But it's now I do. I watch TVG regularly. uh, And it's way better to watch not betting on. Can I tell you, (laughs) it got to where it was work, Kenny, and bad work. I'm a great
1: handicapper.
2: I'm a terrible
1: better. (laughs) Can I give you a trip to take? If you haven't done it already and you don't have to bet you can just Uh go for the because a lot of people go to track and don't bet they go for the right hours and then look at the people and it's you know the atmosphere or whatever royal ascot oh i haven't been but i've watched it yes yes that's the thing i mean they have it's all grass they have some races with like 34 horses on a straight mile run i mean it's it's amazing it's it's been going on for centuries it's it's a pretty cool spectacle
2: I've been in London a couple of times when it was going on
1: and they've had it on TV and it's just, you know, I I, can, I would love to go sometime. Yeah. We, we went to uh, my daughter was taking classes in London and we went this last spring to Paris and London for a little trip to see her oh, wow. see Paris for the first time and got to go out to Longchamp. They're beautiful, oh, yeah. similar track. So I grew up with it going to a little place called Long Acres. I saw a guy named Gary Stevens. Gary, Coming out of yeah. Le Bois, out of Boise, Idaho, and he came over to Long Acres, which, you know. His, his brother, Scott, is, yeah. uh, he's from out there, right? Yep. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and then he had the Bays family, yeah. all the oh, So Tyler, Russell, I've, all of them. I started doing it when I was about eight. Haven't stopped. I think I have it under control, personally. I mean, it's it's. <laughs> it means you don't. Just I stop might. it. Just no, stop it. It's recreation. I don't blow money on other things. I wear no jewelry. I don't buy okay. a fancy car. We take nice vacations once in a while. But you're also we not – you're not firing at them. You're yeah. not
2: – you're not <laughs> – yeah. I mean, Kenny, I would play – I mean, my, my standard bet for any race. And, you know, once simulcasting came, oh, my God, they could bet 60 races a day. My <laughs> standard bet was, you know uh, – Two hundred across on whatever horse I liked, and twenty dollar exact as top and bottom, all all, twelve all all twelve. That's and then that and up. then and then I, I'll I'll probably gonna bet a trifecta and definitely a superfecta and then when the pick sixes came in, Katie bar the door. <laughs> I, I I could go I'd go out I would it's it's insane. Well, but like on a derby day, I would go out. If I couldn't be at the derby, I'd go out and I'd, I'd make $15,000 worth of bets for the card. And then sit and
1: see what happens. It's probably just as well you still appreciate the sport, but don't bet at that level. I will, <laughs> I will give you that. You've described that well. I'm glad you have found it and you're still searching for other things uh, equal to that. And I'm glad you're getting closer to your family in all the ways you described. And it was great meeting you. You too, buddy. Thank you, my main name, Kenny Maine. I'll see you on Twitter. Yes, sir. Hey, Maine is a production of me, Kenny Maine, and Odyssey. Our senior producer is Paul Aspen. Our executive producer is Jody Avergan. And our executive producer for Odyssey is Lena Glazer. If you like our show, please rate us, leave a review, and don't forget to subscribe.